Elliot, Wayne, and Andrew. It took me a second to remember <laughs> who all's there. Are, are you Aaron? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, let me start this again. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Funny Books with Aaron, Paul, Wayne, and Andrew. I'm Aaron. This is Paul. This is Wayne. And I'm Andrew. You uh, well, you really struggle with this four people thing. Well, <laughs> the the struggle might be in my coffee mug. That's I, I was wondering what I said there. I I have uh, been surfing the bourbon since about uh, five o'clock this morning. So, you know. So like like in the new year in in twenty twenty one is is your liver just gonna be like oh thank God he goes back to work now? <laughs> you know I got to tell you I'm really concerned because I, I worked two days this week. And I'm grudgingly considering the the two days that I that I'm going to be working this week, and I'm like, how do I, how do how do I dry out for that? <laughs> what I want to know is when is the new podcast, uh, Funny Books with Aaron and Deadpool's Head, going to start? It's coming. It's coming. It Any will, day. Uh, it will be here shortly. Uh, <laughs> I, I got the Deadpool's Head for Christmas. It is as awesome as it is advertised to be. Uh, I, I, I truly believe that this is a toy that's going to get a, a, a lot of use uh, here at the, uh, the the head house. I, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about my Deadpool's head. See, it has you, you need to Go wire ahead. the whole house up for video and start running it in prank mode. I, you know, I, I really think that this is version 1.0. I suspect that future versions will be more like a smart speaker. You know, I, there is no reason in the world that to to not, you know, have this thing opt into like, you know, the, the Amazon Echo or, you know, the Google Home or something like that. So it can be, you know, fully, uh, art, you know, AI. Uh, I, I think that I think we're going to see many more iterations of uh, of the Deadpool's head it is awesome. My dachshund hates it <laughs> hates it well, elmer, elmer elmer like leapt across the coffee table to get at it and you know i had to put him outside i'm just like well, <laughs> if i have to make a ch- choice between deadpool's head and you elmer i choose deadpool's head <laughs> yeah. Aww, that, elmer. that's how awesome it is because you're not really even a deadpool fan that is correct. I, I really am not much of a Deadpool fan, but the disembodied head, the disembodied life-sized head <laughs> that talks to you is awesome. <laughs> I mean, it makes me want to go out and get other disembodied heads. Like Paul? <laughs> like mine. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm going to say as many slogans as Deadpool's head does if you disembody my head, though. <laughs> well, well, we'll find out. Yeah. Yeah, be You're just going to have his head up in a jar on your shelf, and it's just going to keep saying, my peeps. Peeps. <laughs> peeps. <laughs> just hanging out here on Aaron's shelf. <laughs> and I guess what he'll do is he'll put my head on a shelf and just torture me by playing Wonder Woman 1984 on repeat. Oh, my God, it's so bad. <laughs> Is it really? Uh, it's so bad, Paul. Uh-huh. I, uh, I, you know, I, I, I legitimately loved the first Wonder Woman movie. I loved Wonder Woman in the Justice League film, and so I was super excited for Wonder Woman 1984. And what a colossal letdown! Yeah, I, I didn't have as big of a reaction because I didn't think it was going to be good to begin with, and so I went in with really low expectations. And there's a lot I didn't like. I thought it was okay, but the more I thought about it, and by thought about it, I meant uh, sending Aaron paragraphs worth of all of my complaints about it. The worse it was getting in my mind. It's. I mean, you know, 
I, this question re- real sure. quick. So compared to the the first uh, Wonder Woman film, what in what areas is it worse? Is it is it the script, the story, the dialogue, the effects? What what specifically? Yes. Oh, just all of it. Yeah. The number one, the direction, the, the direction is terrible. Um, there are scenes that you're like, I know I was supposed to understand something there. I don't. You know, so the camera wasn't pointing you towards understanding. Um, I love Gal Gadot or Gal Gadot. I'm sorry. I, I keep pronouncing that wrong. Uh, I love her. Love Chris Pine. Both of them are not used well in this film. I love Pedro Pascal. Not used well in this film. Um, the there is, there There is a scene that is – it is supposed to be the heart-rending, sad scene in the film. It is supposed to be the scene that makes you weep for Wonder Woman, right? And because the director isn't getting it out of her actors – and you know that the act, these are both great actors. Chris Pine can emote. Gal Gadot can emote. Gal Gadot was the only you know, bit of joy in Justice League. And she's not she's not bringing it there, and I can't fault the actors for that. It's got to be the director. Um, and so, because the the direction and the acting and the writing aren't performing, the composer is lifting mountains to make you feel something. So the the soundtrack is doing you know a yeoman's job of just you know really trying to make you feel what you're supposed to feel and the soundtrack is great it's the only really positive thing i can say about the film um the soundtrack is great but it's working too hard and i noticed that throughout the entire film um well and the, it was the, the 84 was directed by patty jenkins just like the yeah, first one right yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I mean the the folks over at Star Wars ought to be very concerned because <laughs> you know <laughs> Patty Patty Jenkins had you know sort of a uh, you know, came into this with a lot of clout to to get what she wanted, and this film is not good, not yeah, good I, at all. And and there there and I want to I want to cite one more thing. It's not a spoiler, not much of a spoiler, but there is something in the film that I, I went, "Are you fucking kidding me?" And it's that the entire end. Well, no, it's when she learns how to fly Uh, and she doesn't learn how to fly because she knows how to fly, that she just intuitively knows how to do it. No, Steve Trevor teaches her how to fly. (laughs) A man teaches Wonder Woman how to fly. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) I want to add to that. It was the worst flying special effects Uh I've ever seen. The, the CGI is terrible in this movie, and there's no reason for that, given how long this film is set on the shelf. I, I, so, I'm just I, I'm baffled at how bad this movie is. My complaints about the first Wonder Woman movie, I thought it was a great movie that completely fell apart at the end because they did their typical. Now we turn the lights off and now we CGI the background until it doesn't look like they're even on Earth anymore. And we have this big CGI battle at the end. And really, that was only the the only thing I really had to point to as a complaint on the first one. Yeah. And this one at least doesn't do that. They do turn the lights off a little bit near the end, but they don't. It never looks like they're not on Earth. It is a big CGI battle, but at least it still looked like it was on Earth. That ending, though, is so horrible. Well, there is a scene in which Wonder Woman turns to camera. 
And while she's talking to the people of the earth, she's talking to the audience. And I'm like, and it's very much a Peter Pan urging the audience to clap for Tinkerbell. And I'm like, they wanted a happy ending and they bent over backwards to give us a sickeningly saccharine sweet, no penalty happy ending that just did not fit with the movie, did not fit with anything. It was so horrible for the ending. There are two things that I thought were done well in the or three things that I thought were done well in the film. Uh, one of which was how you got Steve Trevor back. I'm like, yes. that's actually a pretty good idea. That um, was that was smart. It was a good idea. Yeah, it added a whole other aspect to the story that yeah. you know they never really dealt with. But well, and you know that's the problem is that you know when you get Steve Trevor, of course you understand that you're going to lose Steve Trevor elsewhere in the film. And the fact that she walks away from him and you don't really see the impact of what happened. I'm like, that was a poor choice. You know, that just didn't make any sense to me at all. The way that part of the story was told that that essentially happens off camera. Um, The other thing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. My big complaint is the the other big complaint is the lasso. Oh, my God. It's like she's Spider-Man with that lasso. Yeah, it goes from here's a normal size lasso to here's a hundred feet long lasso to here's it just however long it needs to be needs to go into the sky to wrap around a cloud. It can do that. Uh huh. Well, and the uh... it can catch a bullet. You can spin it around to make a shield. It's like in a few points, it was like it was Mjolnir. Yeah. Well, and how about the uh, the you know final fight scene in which it s- essentially becomes you know Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, because she's doing the whole spinning and, you know, I mean, it's bad when my wife is watching this with me and she's going twirl, twirl, twirl. (laughs) (laughs) The the movie's terrible, guys. I can't say this enough. And it's just just a crying shame because uh, the first Wonder Woman movie is so good. You want to you want to cheer on Gal Gadot. I mean, I you I really came into this film expecting to love it and just hate i mean i was i was 20 minutes in going this is pretty terrible yeah and i, I kept not wanting to look it. at my wife because you know i was afraid <laughs> we'd make eye contact and say let's not let's not continue watching this <laughs> i came in expecting to hate it and it wasn't as bad as i expected yeah well uh wayne said in our chat last night that he disliked it more than justice league um Ooh. i disagree i think justice league is a better film oh I think- no i said it's still better than justice league Oh, I thought you said that you did, that you thought Justice League was uh, was was worse. But the the point that I would make is that the difference between Justice League and this film is that Justice League at least has a clear vision, you know, that it understands what it is and what it's trying to be, uh, and that there there is the brilliance of Gal Gadot in Justice League. You don't have that here. Uh, I the the there are. Part of what this movie is supposed to do is make you feel nostalgic about the 80s, and they don't even do that well. I was like, you know, was uh, why, why are we getting this? This is just stupid. Yeah, you um, get for the first maybe 10, 15 minutes, it is 80s cranked up to 11. Right. And then it kind of just fades back. Yeah, it was – well, it was that. It was – like I was excited, like look at look at the the mall scene. I mean, it was you know quintessential nineteen eighties mall, and then it's the worst fight scene you've ever seen. I mean, I, the, the the fight choreography in this film is awful. I've seen better fights choreographed on Arrow. 
I did really like Cheetah until she turned into full Cheetah. Well, but you know the the problem is is that they save her turning into full Cheetah until the end of the movie, and she's full Cheetah for how long? Ten minutes. Yeah. Uh, that and again, what this movie fails to do is make the case for anything it's doing. You know, they kind of the the you have to kind of go. No, no. Why is it doing that? Why do his powers work that way? I mean, the movie doesn't really explain a lot of stuff. And again, that's that's a script problem. That's a director problem. I tell you, um, the one thing they did well was the after the credit scene. Yeah, the end that, credit. The, the that is one of the scene. best end credit scenes. It's the best end credit scenes DC has ever done. Well, and it was good. It was worth the wait. It was worth yeah. the wait. But, but uh, guys, horrible movie. If you don't have HBO Max, don't waste your time. Yeah, I would have been more more upset if I'd have paid for it. Wow. Okay. Well, you I know. guess I will uh, hold off on running out to the theater today then to see what role it is. Is a movie worthy of 2020? It is a dumpster fire. Wow! wow. And that yeah. is what I'm seeing on my social media as well. All the people that are watching it, I've I've only seen a couple of people that actually liked it. Yeah. It's I, a yeah. it's a bunch of goodwill squandered, is what it is. I uh, I hate to hear that because much like Aaron, uh, you know, Wonder Woman is my favorite. The the modern era of DC movies, and I was yeah. I was pretty excited about Wonder Woman eighty four. Uh, it's not a high bar for it to reach, though. <laughs> Fair. Well, you know, so it was. Uh, the critics loved the film, but you know, I feel like they were all paid off because every critic review is like, I mean, it's got like a ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes from critic reviews, but. Like, everyone who I know personally who's seen it said it was garbage. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. The critics were either paid off or they just haven't seen anything and they were so excited to actually see a movie. Oh, there's that. Right. Well, you know, Pedro Pascal kind of took over uh, took over all the streaming services yesterday because he, <laughs> he had three new releases simultaneously. He had, he had Wonder Woman? Yeah. What were the other two? He had We Can Be Heroes on Netflix. Huh? And he had the um, Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, season what two. What is We Can Be Heroes? I haven't heard of this one. It's the um, Shark Boy and Lava Girl sequel. Oh, that's why I... Yeah. <laughs> Shark Boy and Lava Girl. It's... Did, did you say what Shark Boy and Lava Girl? Yeah. So it's that? a Robert Rodriguez film, uh, kids movie. Okay, thank you. And this is them as adults, and it's following their kids. Didn't yeah. it have Machete in it? Yeah, I mean, does it everything that Robert Rodriguez does? Um, So, you know, and I, so I was trying to decide because there's, there were three major releases, not including We Can Be Heroes, for me yesterday. There was Wonder Woman, there was Soul, and then there was Disney Gallery, The Making of the Mandalorian. You didn't, you didn't add uh, Midnight Sky in there? Uh, You know, I forgot about Midnight Sky, but I do want to see that too. Was that, was that in jest or... No, no, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, uh, I've started it. I've not finished it. Yeah, I, I have not heard good things, but I am a big George yeah. Clooney fan. It also is not good. Oh. Uh, <laughs> what is what is Midnight Sun with George Clooney? Midnight Sky. It is a uh, Netflix original um, that di- uh, directed by George Clooney. It's a science fiction film about. Uh, I, I gather it's one of those movies where it's like the big mystery is what the fuck is going on. What the fuck is the plot? Um, and and I kind of hate those things, um, but the it appears to be a a uh, climate change story, and George Clooney is the last man on Earth, except <laughs> he finds a little girl, and George Clooney has terminal cancer, and an amazing beard. Um, 
and, and there is a space mission returning to Earth that they can't get in contact with Earth oh. and they can't get in contact with them. So, you know, it's a, it's a whole crisis situation. And it is very – it is shot very much in the tone of, you know, sort of dour uh, science fiction films, you know, like uh, Solaris. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it's beautifully produced. I just – so far, I can't stand the way the story is being told. Okay. Yeah, Aaron, what you should give a shot to is on HBO Max, they've got uh, Avenue 5. Yeah. It is a comedy series headed up by Hugh Laurie where they are essentially it's a it's ship like, in space, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm really enjoying it. I'm like four episodes into it. Well, Paul, did you make the right choice in watching Mandalorian, uh, Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian? Because uh, it sounds like it sounds like uh, Midnight Midnight Sky wasn't the right call. Yeah, it sounds like Wonder, Wonder Woman eighty four was the... wasn't the call. So, how was your experience? Yeah, well, it's a real minefield of shitty films. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know the thing about The Mandalorian is it was only an hour, um, and I will say, unlike season one, which was I think an eight episode season, um, each episode focused on a different aspect of the Mandalorian. And is brilliant. I mean, it is just a fantastic watch. See, the 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 second um, season of uh, Disney Gallery is literally just one episode, as far as I know. Oh, really? Yeah, it's just a special. It's an hour long, and it goes through the the entire making of season two, but leaves out huge gaps because <laughs> of the length of it. Um, that is really disappointing. I mean, disappointing. I wanted full episodes. Like, I wanted a whole episode on the one that's a. Uh, a tribute to was it seven samurai yeah i mean so they spend so basically they spend you know it's an hour and four minutes and they spend a little bit of time on each episode um now what i so and it's very much your standard making of unfortunately compared to the first one and that i think because of covid right they didn't have all the directors in one room sitting around a table having a conversation it was your standard interview um type situation and and that kind of thing it was it was a very standard making of without co- kind of the personality and interesting tidbits that the first season had and they left out entire well now that andrew's seen it they left out entirely any conversation about luke um, seriously yeah not not wow. a single me- reference of it what i did find interesting you know there was a, a big rumor about pedro pascal kind of having issues with the show and being not present for the second half of the season. And if you watch the documentary with that in mind, you'll notice you don't see him on set a lot interacting with the directors in the second half of the season, other than the scenes, the two scenes that had his face, you know, the conclusion and the scene where it scans his face. You really like he's in, you know, because I said it goes through each of the eight episodes and you see him on set about what do you mean about Pedro Pascal not being present? There was a big supposed falling out with Pedro Pascal halfway into the season of this really? Mandalorian. Yeah. So, um, Some of the big rumors we heard about it are he didn't want to keep wearing the mask, that he wanted to you know, show his face, that he was uh, basically bitter and petulant against the directors because they made him keep the mask on. But, you know, wow. I, I, but, you know so I've heard it's been disproven. Right, that he because I mean clearly he was on set because his face was very present in the second half of the season, but you know it, it's 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 hard to um, because Disney is so good at covering things up. Like yeah. Pedro Pascal comments on every episode. He's like, the great thing about Robert Rodriguez is blah 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 blah, and I really like this episode because it's so introspective, you know, with the Ahsoka stuff. And then I'm like, 
But then they'd never show him on set for those episodes. And I'm like, is it just like Disney's like talk about the episodes even though you weren't there? Or it, it, there's it, it's there's so if, if I hadn't known the rumor, it wouldn't have pinged on me. But, you know, in watching the documentary, you see him very much on the set in the first half yeah. of the season. And you don't see him on set. Because we the never know who's actually under the mask. It's not always him. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a stunt double sometimes, but well, there's three Mandalorians, have... right? There's yeah. three guys. There's a stunt guy uh, who does all the fighting. I think there's um, uh, there's another guy, and I don't know what he does. And then there's Pedro Pascal, who apparently was in the in the costume quite a bit, at least in the first half of the season. So you know, it's I, I don't know what to believe on the rumor, and quite frankly, I don't care. As long as, you know, because it, it didn't really... As long really, as they keep making. As long as they keep making and as long as it's still good, and it has been. Um, but with that in mind, it was very interesting uh, seeing the second half of the season and, and with that in mind, not seeing him present on set. But other than that, honestly, it's just your standard making of. You're not going to come out of it like, oh, wow, that was great. Um, so, you know, a, a little bit lackluster, but, you know, it, it it's more Mando, so I didn't mind it. Yeah. Speaking of Mando, one of my Christmas gifts was the the Razor Crest. Nice. Yeah, uh, I've got his ship in Lego form that I need to get put together. And then I'm wondering, should I just drop it and let it shatter into pieces? Well, you got to <laughs> build it and then blow it up. Yeah, yeah, that's what you do. You, you need. On it. camera. Yeah. Well, actually, M80 like, came with it, and uh, you know, you just build it and spark up that M80, and you know, there, there's your Razor Crest. <laughs> actually, asked me. Did you still want it now that they blew up the ship on the show? <laughs> yes, I still want it. It is still an awesome ship. Damn them for blowing it up. You know, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by, because I had not heard about this, uh, you know, apparent falling out uh, with Pedro Pascal and, and the directors, but it does kind of make uh, that scene where the Mandalorian's writing in the juggernaut with uh, Bill Burr's character, uh, Mayfield, and Mayfield pulls that, you know, that helmet off as soon as they get in. He's like, man, I don't know how you wear this thing all the time. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and take it off? He just sits there quietly, doesn't respond. Yeah, so I mean, it, it depends. Yeah, it, it, Grace Randolph is really the source of the rumor, and she is standing by it. She is standing the hell what, by what's it. What's a Grace Randolph? Grace Randolph is very much. She's a one of those Hollywood insiders, like Latino Review or you know Heroic Hollywood. Um, she has a YouTube channel. She has a lot of the inside track. She had a lot of the inside track on the whole um, Snyder Cut stuff. So, you know, she she definitely has inside sources. And she's really the source of this Pedro Pascal drama thing. I just, it, it, it again, it didn't reflect in front of the camera. So, I you know, it it's hard to say if it's real or not. Or if Dizzy's really good at just covering up the drama. But regardless, it was kind of on my mind as watching in watching the documentary. Huh. Well, I'll watch it tonight. Yeah, let me know. So, you know, this week in books, we, you know, it's funny because it's Christmas week and usually Christmas week doesn't have like a plethora of books coming out, but we've got a, quite a few books coming out and, you know, all of them were expensive. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we had a Superman twofer uh, and, you know, I think, Aaron, you're the only one who read Action Comics 1028, but that was the conclusion of Brian Michael Bendis' Superman arc entirely. Yeah, you know, last week we had the conclusion to his run on the Superman title, and this week it's Action Comics. And, you know, same kind of comments that I had last week, uh, Bendis does what Bendis does best in this book. It was characters talking to each other. It's Connor talking to Superman and Connor talking to Jonathan and to Supergirl and, you know, reuniting with Crypto 
uh, seeing Ma and Pa Kent. It's, you know, insight from Superman. Um, this, you know, I, I, I would say that this would be kind of a classic book. Um, you know, there's a lot of great exchanges between, you know, Perry and Jimmy and Clark and Lois. Uh, I would say this would be a classic book, that this would be a book that people come back to, except the artwork is terrible. Um, it's it's the, the end of John Romita Jr.'s run on Action Comics as well, and thank God for that, because the artwork is abysmal. Um, the, the, uh, the characters just look awful, despite the fact that they're doing wonderful things in the book. You know, one of the things, you know, all, all the bad guys in the Superman and Action Comics run of Bendis have been taken care of. And so Jonathan looks to his dad and says, hey, why don't we just go around and help people for the rest of the day? So it's Superman and Jonathan flying around, you know, Metropolis helping people. Those and are my got, favorite stories. Yeah, they I really mean, like, are. They, they bring they fly in a, uh, a, you know, a food vending cart and are feeding homeless people in the park. They're changing the tire on a school bus. Uh, the Penguin and. uh uh, what was it? Penguin. It was just Penguin. Penguin comes to town uh, because he wants to fill the, the gap left by Leviathan. And so, you know, there's a great scene with, you know, Superman, Jonathan, Damien and Batman, you know, wrapping uh, Penguin up. I mean, it's just all these sort of, you know, great sort of moments. And I loved it. I mean, this, the story was terrific. The character voices were terrific. The artwork was just terrible. All in all, I got to say, I found that the Bendis run on Superman to be a, a, a great big bust. Uh, I think it had some spectacular moments because, you know, uh, a, a writer of Bendis's caliber is going to have some great moments. I really wish they had paired him with a better artist. Uh, I know there are people who believe that John Romita, uh, John Romita's artwork rocks. I got to tell you, it is well past the sell by date. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to the new team coming up on Action Comics and Superman. Yeah, same here. After uh, Future State, when the books come back, I'll be picking up the first issues of both titles. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting those. Yeah. So I, it, it'd be nice to to be excited about Superman again. Well, you know, I picked up the. Dark Knight's Death Metal, The Secret Origin book. I talked about it last week. Uh, Co-written by Jeff Johns and Scott Snyder, with art by Ryan Benjamin, Francis Manipul, Jerry Ordway, and Paul Pelletier. Like, like this is a superstar team uh, for me. And so I'm going to read the description of the book. The DCU's darkest secrets are explored while two titans clash. The heroes search for a way to defeat the Darkest Knight through the universe's past, while Superboy Prime faces down the demonic Batman. Now, that's the description of the book. All that really happens in this book <laughs> is Superboy Prime faces down the Darkest Knight Batman. Like, there's nothing about other heroes, dark secrets revealed, none of that shit happens. Um, so, it, I, I don't know if there was originally intended to be a, a larger book, but there's not. Um, the secret is they wanted Paul's money, right? Uh, and so it was. And so here's the thing: I loved this issue, but I can't recommend it at the cost of at the cost of five ninety nine, because it's it's only thirty one pages long, right? Uh, so the, at thirty one pages for six bucks, like that's 
that seems like way too much uh, of a cost. But this is very much a Superboy Prime book. You can tell Jeff John's hands um, in this book quite a bit. It tell it retells the origin of Superboy Prime, um, drawn by Jerry Ordway, you know, who I loved Jerry Ordway's art growing up. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of the last stand of Superboy Prime against the Darkest Night. He has some great crypto moments in this book where he, where crypto, you know, sees him for, you know, sees the good in him. And, um, you know, that, that helps inspire him to sacrifice himself, uh, to, to weaken the darkest night for the final battle. Um, and so there, there really is just a lot to enjoy in this book. I really genuinely enjoyed it, even though Superboy Prime can tend to be a bit whiny and he does border on that in this book, but I think there's a good balance. Um, I really, when this book goes on sale, other than, you know, the fact that I haven't been reading Death Metal since issue three, I think, and this is another one of those, like, fill-in books between before the final battle thing, as long as you have a, a, a sense of what's going on in Death Metal, I think there's plenty to enjoy in this book, and especially if you've read Infinite Crisis or any of the Superboy Prime stuff from Jeff Johns, this, this is a real good capper on the Superboy Prime story that Jeff Johns kind of started back in Infinite Crisis. So I enjoyed it. I, I really uh, enjoyed it, thought it was great art. Um, just wait till it's not $6. Yeah, I'll, I'll be looking for it. With, I'll be looking for all those death metal books or many of the death metal books when they go on sale. Yeah. And, you know, another book that I picked up, and I think Andrew picked it up as well, um, another expensive book, was King Size Conan. Uh, but, you know, I picked it up because, again, another, like, murderer's row of talent chris claremont oh, yeah. kurt Busick, uh pete woods roy thomas steve mcniven kevin eastman jesus saiz um stephen denight i mean just really great talent um all telling uh, it's a it's an anthology anniversary book it's conan's 50th anniversary with marvel comics um and so you know just kind of a you know uh throwing all the the, the best talent at short stories featuring conan yeah, and I mean, they, there's five short stories in here, and each one kind of focuses on an aspect of, of Conan's life. You know, one is the barbarian, one kind of focuses him as the thief, the mercenary, the avenger, the corsair. Uh, and for the most part, I really enjoyed uh, these uh, short stories. The first one, you know, uh, Aftermath in the Beginning, actually leads directly into the very first Conan issue uh, published by Marvel Comics. So it kind of shows what happens in the lead-up before he uh, Conan appears on the scene uh, in that first issue. Uh, I thought, for the most part, that was great. Art was really good on most of the issues. Uh, I liked a lot of the references to the greater Conan mythos, like uh, in the Thief um, story, well, it's in the City of Thieves. It, mm -hmm. it all kind of takes place in the shadow of the Tower of the Elephant, which uh, you know was one of uh, Robert Howard's early Conan stories uh, that he put out in Weird Tales back in 1933, uh, you know, features Conan sneaking in and stealing from the Tower of the Elephant. So, yeah, I thought it was well done. What did you think, Paul? You know, the, one of the stories I was most looking forward to was the Kevin Eastman story. Um, yeah. And while I enjoyed the story aspect of it, his yeah. art certainly doesn't hold up. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, I was, uh, what I said most, that was one of my things. I, I would have preferred <laughs> that he just wrote uh the uh story and didn't do the art and you, you and i are both turtles fans so yeah. it's not like we don't like his art in turtle it just did not translate well to conan yeah it's just uh you know it's it's a bit too muddy um and maybe it would have been better in black and white but in color it was it just felt too muddy there's too much like 
I don't know. It just didn't really work for me, uh, especially when you compare it to the art um, by I, I say Jesus, but it could be Jesus. It's Saiz. probably Jesus. Um, yeah. That last story written by Stephen Denight, who was the showrunner on Daredevil, is gorgeous. Yeah, just absolutely gorgeous art. Um, and the first arc, uh, the first story written by uh, Roy Thomas with art by Steve McNiven. I, I, I had to double check the credits page because it is Steve McNiven doing his best Barry Windsor Smith. Yeah. Um, it straight up looks like Barry Windsor Smith art. Uh, so, I mean, the, the art in this book, other than the one we mentioned, was uniformly great. The only thing I, that I will say in, in reference to this book is that when you have five different Conan stories all within the context of one book, what it really shed a light on for me was the limitations you have in telling Conan stories, or at least the limitations that these writers and artists had in telling Conan stories. Because by the fifth story, I'm like, this all feels like the same shit to me. <laughs> <laughs> it really felt like, okay, well, yeah, it's like different settings. And, but all in all, it was like, okay, like this just feels a bit repetitious to me. And I think maybe that's kind of why I, I hopped out of Conan, even when Jason Aaron was writing um it because after a while it feels like wash rinse repeat and you know the sword and sandals stuff it feels like that genre maybe have been exhausted a bit too much uh for to really like pull me in um like it didn't really feel like anything here was reinventing the wheel but again yeah. gorgeous art and uh, i don't remember the cover price on it but it was a it was certainly yeah, yeah it was it was pricey so but i would recommend picking it up on sale just for the the brilliant art yeah, I mean, I think you're right. When you're telling a Conan short story, uh, you're going to focus on kind of his core concept, which is Conan, you know, slicing things into small pieces with a big sword. Mm -hmm. And so when you have five of those short stories packed together, you do, there's a lot of repetition with him slicing things into small pieces. <laughs> um, but, you know, and honestly, you could look at some of the short stories in a similar way. I mean, some of the eras, like when he, the thief and the king are a little bit different. But most Conan stories tend to rotate around him slicing things into small pieces. But yeah. Andrew, uh, what's, a, your, uh, what's your favorite era of Conan? I mean, I'm a big fan of the original Robert Howard short stories from, um, you know, that, the but originally. Like Barbarian, Corsair. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I really like Thief a bit because he's not uh -huh. quite the berserker. He, there's a little more. He's a little more craven, a little bit. And he also seems to be an era where he runs a lot into the supernatural, which mm -hmm. is very off-putting to him, like when he invades the Tower of the Elephant. Um, so that, probably Thief. How about you? I love King Conan. Yeah, yeah. King Conan. King Conan is just, you know, I I, I see a, when we see the uh, old Thor as king, it it puts me in the mind of King Conan. You know, it's the guy who has, you know, as a young man, you'd never see him, you know, being, you know, lord over his own domain. And yet here we are. And I, I just love that guy. Yeah, it, it is the most different probably from all the yeah. different iterations as king. And um, I just blanked out on what I was going to say. Sorry about that. I'm, well, I'm I think there is a King Conan <laughs> book coming out. I feel like there is. Um like an actual King Conan miniseries written by Jason Aaron with art by um, Esad Ribic, uh, kind of you know following up their their arc with a like a miniseries conclusion. I think I read that somewhere. 
Well, I I agree with Paul. I would I would pick it up. It's uh, except for the Eastman uh, art. I would say it is an, an excellent uh, anthology or not anthology collection of short stories. That it's it's quite good. Yeah, agree. Well, you know, we also picked up Andrew and I King in Black number two. Speaking of kings, uh, so you know, I, I think none of us were particularly impressed with the first issue of King in Black. I don't think any of us hated it. Maybe right. Um, but I, I, I found the first issue to be very much. Uh, way a lot of action and i didn't quite completely understand what was going on until i read all the back matter in the back and then uh but i didn't really see it didn't really have much story to me it was just a lot of action scenes but i will say i really really liked kingdom black number two um kingdom black number two for me felt like everything i wanted from the first issue um in that it feels like it, it genuinely feels like the hero's desperate hour um, you know, you feel the desperation in in Spider-Man uh, when all the heroes have been taken over by symbiotes and you see that, you know, they're willing to do desperate things. Namor is going to, um, you know, to, to uncover the uh, these creatures, the Black Tide, uh, kind of the these lost Atlanteans and you see Blade you know, appealing to Dracula. Like they're, they're, they're rounding up as many troops as they can to to take on null because they are just out of other options and so i really liked that about this book um, yeah I, I just it's almost, I, it's, I don't know and the art was great too it's almost like they had to use the first issue to set up how dire things were to justify all the uh extreme things they are doing in the second issue uh, mm-hmm. as far as you know tony stark trying to uh subvert one of the dragons namor waking up the black tide blade hanging out with dracula um <clears throat> excuse me and then, of course, the reveal at the end with Dylan uh, was pretty um, heart-wrenching. Uh, and I did not see that coming. Yeah. So, I mean, genuinely, it's this book, the second issue has everything that the first issue didn't. Yeah. Um, and just, I, this is, a, I'm, I'm back on. So, because of this issue, I'm, I'm, I'm hopping back on. Now, I will not read the Venom tie-ins. I, you know, I'm not going to pick up any additional tie-ins. And it does, you know, in the first... And this is the sequel to Maximum Carnage. I, I felt like the Venom books were essential reading, the Venom tie-ins. You know, I don't feel like they would be in this book based on what's happening to the Venom character himself. Uh, well, one, I mean, based on the what what the author wrote in the back, uh, I think it was Venom Thirty Two is is just what's going through Eddie Brock's mind as he plummets from the top of the empire state building yeah <laughs> that's that is the entire issue is what's going through his head which could be interesting but i don't think it's required reading yeah and that's the, the it doesn't feel like it's going to move the story any so i'm fine i'm going to stick to just the main um books and if if i feel like then i miss something then i'll go back but uh i certainly don't feel like i'm going to miss anything not reading the tie-ins on this one well i will say as far as the tie-ins are concerned uh I before the first King of Black issue came out, I'd started reading Symbiote Spider-Man King and Black. It it's it's good. I've read the you know, two issues in. It's not directly related to the King and Black. It it's kind of a setup to spy you know Peter Parker and his symbiote mm-hmm. and, and before Null shows up. And it's it's pretty uh, good. Black Knight shows up, which is one of my favorite Avengers. Um, so is Symbiote Spider-Man set back in the past when yes. That's what I, I thought. It was during that time period when he had the the symbiote. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly where it is in that timeline. They've left it a little bit vague, but uh, yeah, it is not. It is pre Null showing up on Earth, and it's it's been very interesting. Hmm. So we had, you know, King Conan, King in Black, and now we've got the King in Green. The conclusion to uh, the Maestro issue number five by Peter David. Uh, Wayne and I both read this book. I think we're the only ones. And uh, Wayne. How do you think the, the the book wrapped up? Yeah, because this is the finale of this miniseries. I've really enjoyed the miniseries. It did feel like at the beginning of this one, Hulk seemed, I don't know, weak. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you're used to seeing Maestro as he's in charge and he's, you know, ruling things. And this Hulk seemed like he was, I don't know, not cowardly, but... He was more concerned about things, more like apt to use minion dogs instead of himself. Yeah, agents. Yeah, exactly. Unless yeah. the overpowering character that we have always known. I think by the end of the book, he reaches that point. Yeah, though. And that's that's what this book has been all about. This whole miniseries has been what takes Banner from being Banner to being this character. Right. And you've seen that progression and the small steps made sense. Some of the big ones were a bit of a big leap, but they've given you the reasons why he basically is becoming like his father. You know, I like how Rick Jones is pulling that out. And Rick is one of my favorite things about this miniseries. Yeah, it's I I thought this this book was really well written. I've said it all along. I think this is the best work Peter David's done in years. Um yeah, I we love get, Rick's journey from being excited to see his friend to right. be the just sheer terror of what's about to happen. And, and, you know, we got something in this issue that I was, you know, frankly, a little surprised by. We saw in the prior issue where Hercules is killed and, uh, you know, in the conflict with Maestro or with the Hulk who becomes Maestro uh, because Maestro was Hercules's name there in the city of dystopia. Um in this issue, uh, Hercules, uh, uh, you know, in, in off screen has negotiated a, a favor from, you know, God of the Dead, Pluto, and returns to, uh, you know, face off against Maestro one more time, the Hulk Maestro one more time. And what's great is it's as his body is being burned, you know, on, on a stake <laughs> there in downtown dystopia. And so, you know, Hercules emerges from from the, the, the fire all aflame and undead. And it's really a great visual. Uh, it's great seeing that these two characters face off one more time. And, of course, Maestro wins in the end. But uh, I, I, I super enjoyed this book, and I'm really excited to see that there's another series coming after this. And we don't have to wait too long for it. It's going to be on the shelves January 26th of uh, 2021. Yeah, so, I like uh, to see the further the further descent into this character. And yeah. now that he's in charge, what are his next steps? Yeah, and it's called Maestro War and Packs with Peter David and Javier Pena. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Well, and another series that concluded this week was Doctor Doom. Yeah, this I, is the biggest shock for me of the the week. I, yeah, I am sad to see this book go. I, I, Ten issues is too soon. I, well, there's so I will say there is a um, King and Black tie-in. 
uh-huh. that has this creative team, King and Black, Iron Man, and Doom uh, from Christopher Cantwell and Salvador LaRocca that comes out next week. Uh, so, you know, it's not completely done, but as far as the, the arc that this thing is telling, it's done. But I, I don't know about you guys. I actually struggled with the ending. I struggled with it because I really like the character that was presented in Infamous Iron Man, right? I like that guy. Mm-hmm. I like that, you know, yeah, Doom's an arrogant son of a bitch, but, you know, he deals from a place of where he feels like he's he's working for everyone's betterment, right? Yeah, I really thought we were seeing a series that was the redemption of Doom. Yeah, but, and you know, what, we, what we saw, and, you know, spoilers on... What I struggled with is the doom that is portrayed in this series, the doom that's portrayed in general, is feels different than the one that commits... Deeply flawed. Deep, well, deeply, deeply flawed. flawed. Deeply flawed and, and, and yeah. arrogant, but not willing to commit genocide on a universal level. Right. And that's what we had here. Doom literally destroyed a universe. Yeah. yeah. And everyone well, in it. And it's one of those things where as I'm reading the book, I see it coming. You know, you see well, yeah, I mean, the other Doom's see... reaction. You're like, you know, they're, they've built this up. That he's has this redemption arc. But this other Doom is just, he's pressing all the buttons. Yeah. There's no way Doom is going to react differently than he ends up doing. Yeah. And the whole time I'm like, I'm watching. It's like, Doom should know that Doom is going to push Doom. Yeah, I just, for me, it just felt like... You know, you, you mentioned the redemption of Doctor Doom. What I struggled with with the ending of this book was that it feels like now Doctor Doom is irredeemable in my eyes because of what he's done in this book, and maybe that's the intent. Yeah. But like, you know, when yeah. you murder a universe, you know, he doubles down on being the bad guy. Yeah. And you see it when he comes back. He's the worst guy, quite frankly. He destroyed an entire <laughs> universe, right? Like he's up there with the Anti Monitor at this point. Well, he's he's to. He did something that the Avengers have done. I mean, come on. You know, Reed yeah. Richards and the Avengers did this in uh, the Hickman run. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so come on. But he did it for <laughs> selfish motives. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I just really struggled with that. I was like, oh, oh. Yeah, I <laughs> I have to say, as much as I wanted to see Doom redeemed, by the time he finally does break down and, you know, kill the good version of himself... At that point, I was ready for someone to. Yeah. Like, dude, just shut up. Just <laughs> shut up. Somebody dude, shut this whole guy up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I enjoyed this series. I wanted it to go on longer. Um, I feel like there's there were more stories to tell here. Um, it does feel like they've set up a lot of stuff for future stories, and I don't know, you know, if anyone will pick up those story threads. Uh, I think this this book. Y- I think this book only had one misstep and it was an issue or two ago where we were like, why are they truncating the story so hard? Well, they're truncating the story because they're going to end it in 10. Right. Um, And I I think that's a shame. This book needed more time to breathe. Yeah. It feels like this was intended to be a 12 issue Uh and they had to cut some corners to make it a 10. Yeah. Because even this felt like truncated. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, it's like, okay, he discovered the other universe and destroyed the other universe all in the span of one issue. All in the same And now time. it's over. Yeah. I was yeah. like, oh, okay. Like, it, it definitely felt like, to your point, Wayne, this probably was a 12-issue miniseries condensed down to 10, maybe because of COVID, maybe because of, you know, COVID-related delays. They were like, okay, well, we want to end this in January because it has to coincide with King in Black or some crap. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I... I, I this series had brilliant moments and moments I, I that 
I, I struggled with, but overall it was beautifully drawn by Salvador LaRocca. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what Christopher Cantwell brings to the Marvel universe. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Paul. Yes, sir. What's coming out next week? Well, I already mentioned King and Black, Iron Man and Doom, uh, the one shot tie in uh, written by this uh, same creative team. We also have uh, an interesting one shot from Marvel Comics, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, written by Howard Mackey. An art by Javier Saltaris, uh, hmm. the the creators um, from the Spirits of Vengeance '90s books, are doing Paul, the Return of Vengeance. I need to know more about what the story is in this. The one you've been waiting for, the Return of Vengeance. Michael Badalino was a bad dude in life, and that landed him in hell. But not just any old rung of hell—a layer so deep it's reserved for those special enemies of hell, one where a former Spirit of Vengeance may suffer for all eternity. Um, there's more. As Lilith's Gambit against Johnny Blaze and Mephisto for the Throne of Hell heats up, you can bet other players will enter the arena and Battalina will find a way to ride again as vengeance. Um, so I, you know, given and it's it's four ninety nine, so it's not like an eight dollar book. I might I might check that out. I'm in. Um, and you know, it, it because it's kind of this unusual week in comics. We don't have a ton of new issues, but we do get a few. You know, we get those two one shots, and from DC Comics, we get the Ginny Hex special. Um, one shot now it is He's not writing written, it. Uh, magdalene visaggio who i'm not familiar with um art by gleb melnikoff so you know two two creators i am not familiar with uh yeah. cover looks like it's by nick darrington but i like jenny hex enough that i'll i'll look at the preview yeah. pages and as long as the art isn't offensive i'll probably pick it up yeah interesting well hey we are two weeks two weeks out from uh the 2020 funnies oh yeah so uh you know if you have thoughts uh, let us let us hear about them. Give us a call, 972-763-5903. That number, 972-763-5903. And if you use your voicemail on the show, you could win a coveted, valuable Ideology of Madness surprise. You can also hit us up on social media, IOMGeek on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So tell us, tell us all the things that you want us to talk about on uh, this year's Funny Book Awards. Guys, I'm glad you had a good Christmas. Have a happy new year. Happy New Year to you too, Aaron, and and all of you listeners out there. Here's hoping that 2021 is better than 2020. It would have to be, right? <laughs> yeah, I would hope would. so. Yeah. <laughs> and now I feel like I've jinxed us. Yes. <laughs> 2021 will now be 2020 part two. Just make sure <laughs> no one shows Doom the Ultimate Nullifier and we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Podcast theme music graciously provided by Mark Andrew Pope. For more information, visit markandrewpope.com. Funny Books with Aaron and Polly is a production of ideologyofmadness.com. No Spider-Man clones were harmed in the production of this podcast. Mm-hmm.